Good evening, church. All right, let's gather together in prayer as we come before the word of the Lord. Lord, we thank you indeed for your presence in our life. We thank you that you are the God who saves. We thank you that you are the God who reigns above all else. That you are the God who is wise over any other. We thank you, Lord, for, for the words that have been spoken today about coming indeed and remembering your presence as one that gives us comfort, as one that gives us peace. As we gather, let us remember the power of your cross. Let us remember you who died on the cross for us. Let us not forget the message of the cross. So Lord, indeed, we pray that as we enter this new season together, the Lord will not be stuck in old wineskins, but we will embrace the new and that our eyes will be fixed on you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've begun a new series on 1 Corinthians on this journey of ours to be a true church, to be a living and healthy church. And we look at how Paul addresses certain issues to the church in Corinth, right, about, and challenges them and shapes them to be the church that they are supposed to be. And last week, Reverend Darren started by looking at one of the issues that the church faced on regard to this issue of unity. We looked at different factions that formed in the church, how this unity was brewing because there were divisions over leadership. There were divisions over who to follow. And Paul challenged the people that Christ was not divided. That there should only be one Christ to be followed, and they should do the same. And as we continue in chapter 1, we'll realize that Paul deals with a second type of division. That being a division of power source. Right? Verse 17 tells us, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. It tells us that there is a power struggle going on. A struggle between the wisdom of Christ and the wisdom of the world. We look at it from a very detached point of view, right? Like, like if we measured those two on paper, all of us would definitely say the wisdom of Christ wins. But if we take a closer look at ourselves and ask ourselves that question, we'll realize that very often we have fallen into the trap of tapping into the wrong power source. Put simply, the fact that the second factor for division in the Corinthian church actually speaks to the very core of our faith. Because the tension between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God is one that should not exist. There should only be one clear winner. But as Paul addresses this issue to the Corinthian church, we too in our life, need to address this issue of a power source as well. Because until we submit to the cross, until we submit to godly wisdom, we won't become the church that God is calling us to be. And that the key question for us is do we live by the wisdom of God or do we live by the wisdom of the world? So the passage goes like this from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 31. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 to 31. You can follow it on the screen if you like. 
For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, for not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise." God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boasts in the Lord. And we'll zoom in, into verses 18 to 25 first and to paint the picture of what's happening here, being in Corinth. Corinth is a bustling city, an educated city, and the implication clearly from Paul is that Corinth had allowed the wisdom of the world into the church. And perhaps this refers to certain teaching methods, right? One example is the Greek teaching method or the Greek teaching style of the rhetoric. The rhetoric is one that sounds very polished, something that sounds very sophisticated, something that emphasizes, if you like, the gift of the gap. And this in turn hints that there were two types of people in the church. Those who proclaimed the gospel solely based on the power of worldly wisdom without the power of the cross. And those who believed the gospel because they were only convinced on a level of intelligence. So two types of people. One, those that proclaimed the power of the cross only without godly wisdom and those that were convinced only intellectually. Which obviously then begs the question, do they believe the message of the cross or do they simply believe the rhetoric? In the same way for us, do we pay attention to the message of the cross or are we only receptive when it is done in a way that we can accept. But let's not go away thinking that all craft is bad and has no place. Right? Even here in this passage, as we study what Paul is saying, there's very clear craft in, what Paul, in how Paul writes. Right? Even in verse 25, the hyperbole that is established, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men. There is clear craft in that. But what sets it apart is that that craft was led by the Spirit. What sets it apart is that the skill that is being used to bring forth the message of God can be there, but in and of itself, that skill has no value. 
In other words, we must be careful that we are not style over substance and that we are also not, if there is no style, we don't listen to the substance. Because the substance is of what is of what is utmost importance. It doesn't mean that there can be a lackluster attitude towards the craft, but it does mean that the message must be above all else. And the reason is simple. Because human wisdom has no value. Human wisdom cannot understand the things of God. If we rely on human wisdom, we will never truly believe and never truly understand God. Because the wisdom of God is so great, so thick, so wide, so powerful, that attempting to understand the wisdom of God humanly will only ever result in a misunderstanding of God. See, our faith and the wisdom that we live by cannot be merely a matter of the head. It cannot be merely something that we understand at the knowledge level. Thus, Paul calls the church back to fully trust in the power of God, to fully trust in godly wisdom. And to understand better the depth of Paul's arguments, we'll look at three key phrases from verse 18, which says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of of God. We'll look at what it means that the word of the cross, as the first phrase, is folly to those who are perishing. And the final phrase, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so we'll look at the word of the cross. In the NIV, the translation writes this verse as the message of the cross. And for us to better understand what Paul is speaking about, we need to rekindle and remind ourselves what exactly the message of the cross is all about. We sang about it just now, but we need to remember exactly what the message is. And as we look down in Paul's passage to verse 23, we see that the message of the cross is ex it's inextricably linked, rather, it's indispensably linked to Christ crucified. And here's where we must remember just how offensive the message of Christ crucified was to the people of that day. N.T. Wright, a respected theologian, writes this. This wasn't a smart new philosophy. It was madness. It wasn't an appeal to high culture. It was news of an executed criminal from a despised race. See, so often we think of the cross and we think that it's wrapped in bow ties and it's wrapped in flowers and we have cleaned up the whole image, right? We remember the message of the cross and, and only remember the good things that it brought about. We remember the message of the cross as freedom, as new life, as victory. And of course, it represents all those things. But it's so much deeper than simply something that wants something for us. See, when we dilute the message of the cross to something that only sounds good to our ears, we shortchange the story. Because more than a story of victory, more than a story of freedom, the cross represents the price that the Lord has paid to rid us of our sin. The cross represents the high price and debt we owe to the Lord. That yes, it's great that we recognize that God is the God who saves. That is true. But let us not forget as well 
that the message of the cross starts with humility, commitment, sacrifice, and reconciliation. Three passages in the Bible reveal these simple truths to us. We turn first to Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 to 8. Who though he, as in Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Such is the humility of Jesus Christ, such is the humility that the cross represents for us, that being God, he didn't see his position as a reason to protect himself. He didn't use who he was to his own advantage. Instead, he subjected himself to the cross. In fact, so great was his own humility, right, that it's exactly that phrase there, he didn't use it to his own advantage. Far from using the position that he had for himself, he saw it as his unique qualifier that made him the sacrifice that was needed to be made for us. And in it, we also see Christ's commitment, quality of commitment, where he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. We see someone who exemplified being committed to God's purpose. That's the message of the cross. We turn to Isaiah 53 verses 4 to 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrow, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought about peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We see humility, we see sacrifice right here. That, that Christ bore our sins and sorrows. He took upon the weight of our sin on the cross. He was stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. And that was what that was the punishment we were supposed to receive. But he took it all on for himself. And finally, to Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 to 22. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Through Christ, we were reconciled to God. And later in Corinthians, we know that we too are challenged into this ministry of reconciliation to play the role of peacemaker, to help people make peace primarily with God and then with others. And this is the message of the cross. Let's be clear, let's remember that. That the message of the cross starts in humility, in commitment, in sacrifice, and in reconciliation. And it's precisely this message that Paul is pointing out is foolishness to the world, is folly to those who are perishing. 
Paul begins here and he calls out two groups of people. First, he says to the wise, to the scribe, and to the debater. In some translations, it's the philosopher. And basically, he, po- he points out every measure of worldly wisdom. Every measure of worldly wisdom. To those that were schooled in philosophy, to the Jewish scholars of the day, to those who love to use human reason to understand everything, he boldly, he calls all of them out and then he declares, has not the Lord made foolish the wisdom of the world? And Paul singles out a second group as well later in verse 23, 24. He says, he describes it as a stumbling block to Jews. See, the Jews had this idea that Jesus would come on a white horse, save them, and that their life on earth would be great from day one. They had this idea that Jesus was some kind of political savior, and they couldn't believe the way Jesus came to earth. So there are two prongs to whom the message appears as folly, to those of a misconception of God and to those who rely on the wisdom of the world. And we need to ensure that we're not in either of the two errors. But for today, we'll look at the wisdom of the world. See, as, as Singaporeans ourselves, we, we ourselves have the propensity to turn into philosophers in our own right. To judge things solely by logic, to rely on human experience, to look at things through our own eyes. But that's exactly what Paul speaks against. And that's exactly what we need to unlearn in our own minds. See, we know that the message of the cross leads to eternal life. And living by the way of the cross is what we are challenged to. And as disciples, as we take up the cross daily and follow Christ, it means that we need to make a conscious decision to follow the wisdom of God in the face of the wisdom of the world. We talked about the four things that the cross represents. Now we look at the four things that the wisdom of the world says and we contrast it and we see what it means for us as Christians. The, the wisdom of the cross represents humility, but the world stands for pride. The world looks down on the humble, right? It often sees one's humility as a sign of weakness. It might tell you that humility is a great quality to have, but more often than not, humility is a means to an end. Like we must appear humble to get into certain positions. But it's exactly in true humility that the Lord sees wisdom. In counting others above ourselves, in looking at ourselves not more highly than we ought. And in God's wisdom, He promises to raise those of us who are humble. So what does humility mean to us? These are questions to think about. Are we genuinely humble? As a church growing to be spirit-filled, growing deeper, growing higher, are we humble? Are we teachable? Or are we self-righteous? Do we justify all our actions and never acknowledge a wrong? Do we accept correction from those around us graciously? Do we give grace to those who make mistakes? Or do we thumb them down because we feel that's our right? These all stem from an attitude of true humility. And that is the mark of the cross. And that is the mark of the wisdom of the cross.
So that the cross stands for sacrifice, but the world stands for power. The world likes to emphasize authority. It uses authority to assert prominence and position. But if we look at God and we look at Jesus, authority was meant to build up. Authority was meant to allow people to prosper. Right down to the very beginning of creation, when God said, let men have dominion over the earth, it wasn't that we could do as we pleased, but instead, it was to take care, to steward, to be fruitful and multiply. And not only that, we see that God's authority is sacrificial. We spoke earlier about how Jesus allowed himself to be crucified for the salvation of all, and that is key to biblical authority. It is sacrificial and meant to build up. So for us, how do we express authority? Through power, through assertion, or through nurture, and through building? For those of us who are leaders that can be anywhere, in our homes, in the marketplace, in church, or maybe we are even leaders in the sense of there are people younger than us looking up to us. Our children are following us. How do we use the authority that we have been given? Do we build people up? Or is the underlying message of the way that we carry ourselves, listen to me because I say so? Because that line is rooted in worldly wisdom. It's rooted in a self-seeking, insecure nature that seeks to defend your authority. Authority in the Bible is meant to build up, not meant to tear down. And the cross stands for reconciliation, but the world stands for prejudice. The world will insist on one's rights. When you have conflict in the world, they'll tell you, fight for what you deserve. Take them to court, sue a claim, file a complaint, write some feedback, and then after that, never associate with them again because you burned that bridge. The world forms prejudice. Do we carry this attitude into the church? Do we carry this attitude in the way that we live our lives? Do we label people and treat them according to their label? Or do we stand with the cross and decide to forgive? Do we stand with the cross and decide to make that effort to reconcile? See, the cross challenges us to make peace with our brother before we give our offering. It calls us to live peaceably with one another. And in the way that we express that, as we play our part, we never know how the Lord might lift a burden in us. See, human relationships are complicated, right? We might, want, we might desire reconciliation. We might desire to get back together, but sometimes it's not reciprocated. But it doesn't remove us from our responsibility. And as we make that effort, as we make that first step, the Lord lifts our burdens. The Lord, we can see that same issue from a very different point of view. That's what it means to pursue all that makes for peace and builds up our common life. That we cannot be so insistent on what we believe to be right that we distance ourselves from members of the body of Christ. Because the cross stands for reconciliation. We were baptized into one body. That 
is the wisdom of the Lord. And finally, the cross represents commitment, but the world looks at preference. The world says, go for the convenient route. You do you. Make the decision. Do whatever you want to do. It places preference as number one. But in Christ, we are called to commitment. We are called into a committed relationship. And this commitment that is exemplified on the cross is the model for us to follow in all our lives. It applies to our marriage. It applies to our partners. It applies to our lives of discipleship. That because we are believers of Christ, we honour our commitment to Him. Right? That 5pm service means 5pm service, whether or not we are in the sanctuary or at home. And we don't come in at 5.15, especially when we are online, taking a cup of coffee, lying about on our beds, preparing dinner and cooking while we are watching. We don't do all these things when we are here live in the room, so why do we do it when we are at home on live stream? This is what it means to honour our commitments. And of course, as the situation improves, hopefully, hopefully people stop going to KTV. When we look at the Bible, we see that we are called to fellowship. And true fellowship takes place in person. And of course, at this point in time, that's not illegitimizing any one of us who are online. Okay, practically, we can only take 50 people here and 50 people on Sunday. But it does mean that online is not our easy way out option. That if we can be in the room, we should be in the room. Because we're being called and challenged to commitment. And having a commitment to Christ should also mean that we are following the way that the Lord is leading in the community that we are in. As the leaders share what the Lord has placed on our hearts, we get on board with them. Of course, we don't follow blindly. We ourselves need to go to the Lord and ask the Lord, is this really what it is? And be convicted that that is really what the Lord is saying. And honestly, if we don't ourselves go to, the, go, go to God and ask those questions, then who are we not to follow? Right? And along the way, yes, you can engage the, uh, the leadership, the shepherds in conversation. Yes, you can speak to them and wrestle with the issues, but we must always choose alignment over preference. That regardless of how long we have been in this church, we see our preference to where the Lord is leading us. We don't hang on to the power that we think we have, but we let it go and we get on board with the Lord's direction. One practical way that this takes shape, right? If you put it in the announcement video, in our cell groups, are we willing to let go of all our planned Bible studies, as good as they might be, but to put the focus on the direction of the church. Of course, if your cell wants to meet more than one time a week, you want to do your own Bible study, go ahead. But the cell groups of all saints, our first commitment is to the church and to the direction that the Lord is leading us. See, this world stands for pride, power, prejudice, and preference, but Christ stands for humility, sacrifice, reconciliation, and commitment. 
that's how the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And as we take this in and remember it ourselves, it will challenge every preconceived notion of what we want to do. It will challenge every inch of our being. And it will make us uncomfortable because it goes against our nature. But we must recognize that our nature is fallen. And we must submit to the sanctifying work that the Lord is doing in our lives. That's how we live out the wisdom of God. And yes, the world might look at us and think, what you're doing is illogical, right? Why, why reconcile with someone who betrayed you? Why you are in this position but you never do anything for yourself, right? Um, why do you choose to come to church? Why are you so committed to making your marriage work? The world can see us as foolish and that's okay. Because the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And see the, the, the assurance that we have that Paul talks about is that the foolishness, what looks like foolishness to the world, is in fact the power of God. That in coming to Christ, we receive His sanctification and we begin to live in this way. We live in the power of God. And it should not surprise us that the world laughs because this power of God was never meant to make us look like one with the world. We are in the world but not of the world. And in fact, more than that, as we live by the way of the Lord, we should expect to be persecuted. But then remember, blessed are the persecuted. Because by the Spirit's strength, we can live in a way that turns this upside-down world right side up. Paul finishes like this, So consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And these five verses ought to be an assurance for us because no matter where we have come from, we are being called into this journey. The world might look at us and think we have lost our mind. The world might look at us as weak. The world might look at us and never understand what we're doing. Why are we giving up certain things? for the things of God. But as Paul says, we have actually been invited and been made a part of this plan where God is using what the world despises to shame the world. Where God is using what the world looks as weak to shame the strong. That despised and of lowly stature we may be in the world's eyes, but we are chosen and redeemed in the eyes of God to bring this truth to those around us. And as people in Christ, we can be confident, we can be sure that it is not our own strength, but that as God and the Spirit is alive in us, we have confidence in God to stand on His firm foundation, to stand in the things of God. 
See, that's what it looks like when we rely on the wisdom of God. That we become the one who boasts only in the Lord. That if boasting points to where our confidence lies, if boasting points to where we find our strength, then of course in a fallen world, the only place that we as Christians rely on is to boast in the Lord God Almighty. That as we believe in Christ, we can live counterculturally to the powers of this world and tap on the one true eternal power source. That being the cross of Christ that calls us to live a life of humility, sacrifice, commitment, and reconciliation. To tap from the power source of Christ, to say no to worldly wisdom, to accept as truth the message of the cross, to recognize that it is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, and that's every single one of us as we surrender the Lord's work, it is the very power of God. All saints, let us be a church that trusts in the message of the cross. Let us be a church that lives in humility, that lives in sacrifice, that pursues reconciliation, and that lives lives that are committed to God. That in all we do, we learn to trust and obey. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we repent, Lord, of the times we have trusted in the wisdom of the world. We acknowledge that in our folly, in our human weakness, we have forsaken the message of the cross. We have not led lives of humility, we have not led lives that pursued reconciliation. forsaken our commitments to you. We have not sacrificed. Lord, help us learn. Mold us right now. Speak into our hearts. I just sense the Lord saying that as Pastor Mabel shared about coming to the Lord, those who are weary. And maybe the weariness is because we've been trying to fight against what the Lord wants for us. We've been fighting against the message of the cross. And if that is, you know, the second part of that verse talks about that, that the Lord's yoke is easy. And it refers to how as, as bulls plow the field, the yoke is the thing that they carry with them. When, when, when the yoke is easy, it means that it's exactly the fit that God has intended for you. And maybe there's some of us in this room that need to learn to trust and obey where, the, where God is wanting us to work. They're going to be trying so much and pushing so much just 
fit into a job because they're saying that job was not meant for you. And if that's you after the service, you can come forward. The pastor will be here to pray for you. Otherwise, as Ken sings this, let's surrender.